Good morning, Pastor Gary here. I'm so grateful you chose to join us here online this morning for Living Way's live stream message. Today, we are continuing our series on Esther, and today we're going to look at Esther chapter 6. So far, our story has had some pretty crazy twists and turns up to this point. And well, today is going to be no different. And the number one thing that we need to see is that God is at work in all of this. And sometimes, in what may seem like the smallest of events, God is at work ensuring that his larger plan for humanity occurs. In the church, we like to say that God is sovereign over all things. That simply means that God's almighty power extends to every facet of your life. There is nothing that you do that is not affected by the hand of God in some way. And we have seen this all along in our story. From the grand party that King Xerxes held that would lead eventually to the removal of Queen Vashti, which would then lead to our foolhardy King Xerxes falling head over heels for a beautiful Jewish girl named Esther. And then his crowning her as the queen of the Medo-Persian Empire. Why would God bring our hero Esther to this point? Because Satan had a man under his control named Haman, who was going to launch a plan to completely wipe out the Jewish population, and all with the blessing of our King Xerxes. Haman's racist, evil heart, however, was so impatient for revenge against Esther's uncle Mordecai that he just couldn't wait. And so, in his anger and by the suggestion of his closest advisors and his wife, he builds a 75-foot gallows from which to hang Mordecai. In fact, this little bit of information is very important for today's chapter. So I'm going to go back into chapter 5 to remind us of some of what happened at the end of that chapter, and then we'll look at chapter 6. So at the end of chapter 5 and verse 9, we read, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Haman's evil racist heart has found a target in Mordecai. This really has little to do with Mordecai and more to do with, with Haman's sinful heart his lust for power and public praise, and his hatred for the Jews has created a perfect storm in his life. This is where sin will always eventually lead us. It may not look just like this. However, it will always end with hurricane force, hurt and pain coming to the surface. Haman, in his anger, seeks solace in his closest friends and wife. Why? Because they're going to say whatever he wants to hear. Not what he needs to hear, but rather that thing that will momentarily the soothe the beast within him, but ultimately stoke its fires. And so in the last verse of chapter 5, this is what we read. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. That night, he goes out and wakes up the engineers and workers, and he has them work through the night in order to ensure that when he awakes from a nice, restful sleep, 
this 75-foot gallows will be complete and ready for use, and he will be happy again. But God. Unfortunately, chapter 6 starts with a man who is suffering from insomnia, our king. And in verse 1 we read, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Okay, so let's look at this. If you can't sleep, what do you usually do? Count sheep, drink warm milk, take Benadryl, NyQuil, I don't know. How about having the history of your exploits and reign read to you by some attendant? Because that's got to be so boring that it would put anyone to sleep, right? I don't see this of Xerxes, though. From what we have seen of our king, I don't see this working particularly well. At least, I don't see it this way, at least. This is going to go through every battle that he has led and the defeat of his many enemies. All of the tribute that those who have been defeated and simply resigned to being subjugated by the Persian Empire have given to him. It's also going to be a record of all those who have been loyal to him and the mighty deeds that they have done that have brought him honor through their loyal actions to their king. And how gracious our king has been to reward them for such unfailing loyalty. For any of us here today, that is probably going to put us to sleep. But I'm not seeing that with Xerxes. This is the kind of stuff that's going to get him excited. So why? Why would he have something like this done to help him sleep? Perhaps it wasn't his choice ultimately to make. But rather his choice was affected by the very hand of God. And so, where does our reading eventually lead us to? In verse 2 we read, It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who had guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Oh my! <laughs> How convenient to bring before the king right now at this very time I mean, it's probably just dumb luck, right? Probably not. And so the official reader, <clears throat> how about that job, would have read of the account of Mordecai finding this plot and then getting that information to King Xerxes to save the king's life. And then it appears to Xerxes, at least, that our reader skipped a very important piece of information. Because right after events of loyalty like this were recorded, it would have also been recorded for all to know the gracious rewards that were heaped upon our loyal subject. Our reader, our attendant, seems to have missed that point, though. And for Xerxes, that is just as important as the loyalty being served. Because in the thinking at the time, who would con continue to be loyal to the king during moments like this, <clears throat> during moments like this one, if they were not properly rewarded? So he needed to make sure that Actual, that that actually happened. Otherwise, much of the framework upon which the kingdom rested may falter. People could not trust their king to reward their loyalty, and so, why be loyal? At least that was the thinking at the time. So the king stops the reader, and in verse 3 he asks, What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answer. Nothing. This is, in the king's mind, a gross negligence that must immediately 
be rectified. In fact, it cannot wait for him to even get the least bit of rest. He must ensure that Mordecai is to be rewarded properly. And this is of utmost importance to him. And I do believe this is for several reasons, one of which we've already discussed, right? This process was a very important part of many ancient governments. Second, and I believe more pressing for our king, was that this was the man who had raised his beloved wife and queen as his daughter. How could he overlook this person of all people? So an immediate solution is necessary. And in verse 4, we are going to see that solution begin to take shape. We read, the king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had just erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. Oh, this is about to get interesting. Haman is coming in to seek an appearance with the king in order to request that he be allowed to murder Mordecai. And the king has just chosen Haman to help him reward Mordecai for his unfailing loyalty to the king. Is this just some chance meeting? I dare say not. This was an appointment set by God from before the foundations of the world. And there were so many chance encounters along the way that all needed to line up perfectly in order for us to find ourselves at this very moment in time. Look, the world may at times seem to be falling apart all around us and completely random, but God, but God is at work always for our good and for his glory. Now watch in the dialogue that occurs next, because even the way in which the dialogue occurs has got to be God at work. Xerxes is not going to speak the name of Mordecai until the very end. Why not? I would suspect that most of these types of discussions would begin with something like this. I need to record reward Mordecai or whoever because of X. But that is not at all what our king does. Instead, he dances around who is in question completely. And as a result, Haman assumes someone else. And he is very wrong. So let's look at this discussion. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man, king, for the, man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed upon its head. Then... Let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Haman, in his absolute blind arrogance, is certain that he must be the one that the king wants to honor. So hey, let's not be subtle. Let's go all out. And in fact, if you look closely at what Haman requests, he wants to be king for the day. He is so self-consumed and self-absorbed that he spills his own heart's true desires. He wishes to be king. This would have been for Haman the ultimate in public praise to be led around by a prince dressed as a king. But 
God. And our king replies, Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and get the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. No one can ever convince me that our God does not have a sense of humor. We sit back right now and we are like, this is absolute crazy funny. What karma, whatever, I don't believe in that junk. What an amazing, almighty, gracious, glorious God we serve. And this is just the beginning. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to watch Haman now go and get a royal robe, the royal crest, and a royal steed, all the time knowing that he is going to have to lead Mordecai, his ultimate enemy, around and declare, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now, I know deep down Haman wanted to stomp his feet and tell Xerxes exactly why he couldn't do such a thing, but rather why they needed to go and impale this man's body from a 75-foot pike to hang as a warning to not cross Haman, but not a whimper. To have argued with the king would have meant his head. Instead, I'm sure he skulked away, completely distraught, to fetch what were supposed to be his honor and his glory. And in verse 11, it is all fulfilled. And we read, So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor, the one true king, the God of the heavens. But Mordecai isn't Haman. And so this isn't the rewards that he would have sought. And as such, they are completely meaningless to him. He is secure in his place in life, knowing that this is exactly where his God has brought him. He doesn't need the public praise that Haman so deeply idolizes. And so the first sentence in verse 12 reads, Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He just goes back to work like nothing had ever happened. Which, let's be honest, would have only incensed Haman even more. How can someone not desire such accolades to be heaped upon them? Mordecai doesn't carry your sickness, buddy. Haman's response is completely different. It says that he rushed home with his head covered in grief. All of Susa, the whole city, knew that Haman in his anger had led him to declare and convince the king to sign an edict that would result in the murder of every Jew in the empire, and all because Haman hated Mordecai. And now this. Oh my, our God has an amazing way of bringing about justice. It is interesting, our justice system today would never do such a thing out of fairness to the individual in question. But God. In the book of Proverbs chapter 26, verse 26, Solomon writes, His malice may be concealed by deception, but his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. The Proverbs are these really short, concise tidbits of wisdom that King Solomon recorded under the influence of the, of the Holy Spirit. And here, Solomon has written that a man will try for all he is worth to hide his malice. Now, that's not a word that we use much today. It's the desire to cause pain or to injure someone else. And that is exactly what Haman has been doing in both the edict in which he deceived the king to thinking that there was this entire people group out there 
plotting his downfall, which was just not true. And then, in his treatment of Mordecai, in regards to the king. But all of Susa knew exactly what was going on. They saw through Haman's malice and anger towards Mordecai and his evil, racist heart towards the Jews. And so God puts it all on display here for all of Susa to see just how far the mighty have fallen. And yet our king, he's still completely oblivious to any of what is occurring around him. Haman is desperate to be comforted in his grief and in his time of need. And so he turns to the crew that has helped him in the past, his wife and his closest friends. Remember, they were the ones that had advised him to build the gallows and to put Mordecai to death that had brought him such happiness. Well, here's their new recommendation as to what Haman should do. In verse 13, we read, His advisors, his friends, and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Wait a second. What? Because Mordecai is a Jew, you cannot succeed. They knew he was a Jew before. What happened? In less than 24 hours, they have completely changed tunes. Look, we've all seen this, right? We've gotten advice from someone and that advice goes poorly for us. Then they don't want to own the advice at all. And look, it's not their fault. No matter what we want to think, if someone gives us poor advice based solely upon the information that we choose to share with them, that's not their fault. And that is what always happens, right? There's no way that they can possibly know everything about the situation in which we find ourselves. And so we need to be careful not to blame others for poor advice. Perhaps it was our responsibility to weigh said advice a bit better than we did, knowing more fully the situation. The other piece of this, however, is that whenever we offer advice, we need to own it a bit better than these knuckleheads do. This is just disgusting, right? They go from kill the Jew to, oh no, he's a Jew. And well, you remember the stories about how that always went for our ancestors when they chose to go up against the Jews and their God. You're just a dead man walking now, dude. Wow, that's just weird. Don't do that to people. We are all going to give bad advice based on incomplete information at times. Of course, we can't really say that here concerning Haman and his friends. They knew that Mordecai was a Jew, and now that is the sole reason Haman is doomed. It does show just how fickle we as humans can be oftentimes. It takes a lot of work mentally to ensure consistency in our own thoughts oftentimes. But this is what happens when we allow our emotions to run rampant and become sinful. Look, emotions in and of themselves are neutral. Where we allow them to carry us, however, may become sinful. Anger, for instance, in and of itself is not sinful. Our actions under the influence of anger may be sinful, though. And look, you can just plug any emotion you want into that equation, and it's true. No one would say that love is sinful, right? Love can't be sinful. However, any adult loving a child too much is sinful. I hope you get where that was going. Emotions are not the problem. 
They are not our enemy. God created us to experience emotion. He experiences emotion. Our response to those emotions, however, may be the problem and our enemy in this war against sin. So, how does Haman now feel? These wonderful friends have gone from completely supportive of him and backing him up 100% to, you're a dead man walking now, dude. You're ruined. Because Mordecai is a Jew. They knew this. I believe that most of us would feel a bit betrayed by them. How depressed do you think Haman is? What about his anxiety level? Look, all of us have periods in our lives in which we experience depression and anxiety. They oftentimes go hand in hand. And when that happens, the one thing that we want more than anything else is not unsupportive people around us. And so oftentimes, we simply slink away and hide from the world. Look, I get it. It's just easier. And the last thing that we want is to be forced to be around or even confront those that we might see as antagonists within the midst of our own stories. But sometimes, God. And as a result, we read in the final verse of Esther chapter 6, While they were still talking with him, Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Esther, the Jew. Haman had just been so excited about the opportunity to dine with the king and queen, but from Haman's perspective, that delight has been stolen from him. I am certain that there is little joy left in Haman's life. We don't like to try to emotionally connect with the one that we see as the bad guy in stories. But we've all been there, where we feel betrayed by those whom we should be able to trust. And so I kind of feel bad for Haman right now. Look, not a lot, but a little bit. I feel bad for the guy. This chapter begins with what would seem like a completely insignificant event. But that event, our king, sleepless in Susa, is the hinge upon which our story now turns. Esther hasn't stood her ground and fought for the Jews yet. Interestingly, in chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai says to Esther, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And just as her father's family, Mordecai, is about to perish, someone arises from another place. God the Father rises from his heavenly throne and intervenes on behalf of this man who faithfully and obediently serves King Xerxes and the Medo-Persian Empire. Many Jews would have seen them as the enemy. And yet God saves Mordecai. This is just something to ponder. Now, this doesn't mean that our actions are meaningless, that God's just going to do everything for us, right? Esther is going to get her moment. We just haven't gotten to that point in the story yet. Esther's faithfulness in and towards God is important, and God is going to use and reward that faithfulness. And it is pretty clear in this that God does not allow the unrighteous actions of others to go unchecked against his people. They might may cause harm and malice for a time, but God has and will always intervene at just the right time. And so Mordecai's and Esther's obedience is a piece of the puzzle of God's wonderful work that he is doing in the midst of a pagan land. 
we need to always remember this. We never know how God is using our own obedience when he nudges us to act. We must obey just like Mordecai and Esther. I have poked pretty hard at Haman's wife and friends, and the truth is most of us would have probably been in agreement with their first recommendation. I mean, how can a man like Haman know anything but success? He appears to have it all together, right? He's got the position, the wealth, the fame, the honor. He's got it all. How could such a man or his plan fail? Because as mighty as he saw himself to be, and truthfully, as mighty as he really was in the midst of the Medo-Persian Empire, Jesus is infinitely more powerful and more capable. And when Haman turned his inward sin sickness that he had towards God's chosen people, God the Father was going to respond in order to protect his children. I believe that two of the most important verses in all of Scripture are found in Genesis chapter 12. These are verses 2 and 3. This is God calling Abraham to go to the promised land. It is the beginning of the nation of Israel. It is the foundation of the Jewish people. These two verses read, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Within these two verses are hidden the greatest mystery that has ever been revealed. The coming of a blessing for all the people on earth. The coming of Jesus Christ. But also within these verses is a promise for all who stand against God's plan to save his people. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And is this very promise that Haman now finds himself fighting against. And not just this promise, but the very God who made the promise. Haman is in essence battling against the one who created him and loves him so much that he gave his own son's life to save Haman. Haman, his wife, and his friends thought he had nothing to worry about going in after the life of Mordecai. Look at that man's personal record. But relying on your own goodness or personal record of good deeds done just isn't going to cut it. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 reads, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Have you done everything written in the book of the law? You see, we serve a perfectly righteous God. Perfectly righteous. And the standard by which he will one day... <clears throat> The standard by which we will one day all be judged is his perfect righteousness. And so if you have not perfectly fulfilled the very letter of the law of God as it is recorded in the Bible, you stand here today, just like me, under the curse. We have but one hope in life, and that hope is Jesus. In Galatians 3:14, we read, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Jesus, in essence, paid the price that we as unrighteous beings were un incapable of paying. And when Jesus paid that price, he was able then to redeem us. He purchased us back from God the Father from under the curse. And by faith in the works of Jesus Christ, not our works, but his works, we are sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is our surety, our certainty, that Jesus 
has given to each one of us to ensure we will make our final destination, so to speak. Even though God has sealed us and blessed us, we oftentimes act otherwise. We do not always place our trust firmly in the providence of our omnipotent God, that He will do what is best for our souls and to bring glory to Himself through our lives. We oftentimes live with doubts and fears about our own lives, the future of our children, or even the future of our own churches. Why? God is going to accomplish His will in this world, oftentimes slowly and imperceptibly. But He is always working out His will in our lives for His glory. How He brings about His glory sometimes may be absolutely glorious, or, as it is in our story right now for the Jews, quite stressful. But when we place our faith in our perfect, loving, omnipotent Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then and only then can we be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present our requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And when we do this well, as Mordecai and Esther have done, we will be able to declare, just as Paul does in Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Because we will not be walking in our own strength, but rather we will be walking in the strength of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we are doing the very will of God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we come humbly before you and ask that you would open our hearts and minds to you, that we might feel that ever so gentle nudge that you so often give that we might be obedient to your will for our lives as you work out your glory in this world. Help us, Lord Jesus, that we might be part of your story as Mordecai and Esther are part of your story, that our lives might be used by you to extend your grace and your mercy to this sin-sick world. And Holy Spirit, fill us afresh that we might stand in your strength and know your peace when troubles come. Bless us, Lord Jesus that we might be a blessing to all those around us, that they might know you as their Lord and Savior as well. Amen. And now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.